Hello and welcome to Senius Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senius Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Joe McCann, founder, CEO, and CIO of Asymmetric. Joe and Asymmetric blend deep technical knowledge and expertise with an institutional trader's mindset to market structures, trading strategies, and risk management. Joe and team have decades of experience in finance and technology, and therefore are able to take advantage of opportunities in both the private and liquid token markets. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Senius Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Senius Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, and welcome to the Senius Studio. I am your host, Ben Jacobs of Senius Capital. As you all know, in this podcast, we love to interview crypto's biggest, brainiest minds that have taken on the Herculean challenge of running an investment fund in the digital assets arena. And today's guest is not only an OG in the crypto space, the guy has been involved in trading and the open source world for a long time now and has applied that knowledge and experience to launching his own fund, which we'll definitely jump into. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce everyone to Joe McCann from Asymmetric. How's it going, Joe? Oh, it's great. Thanks for having me, Ben. Excited to be here. Yeah, and uh, we've gotten to know each other over the last few months and uh, love the team that you've assembled over at Asymmetric and and think you guys are doing great work. So figured uh, a good place just to set the table would be just to touch on your background, your experiences, where you're from, and then how that ultimately brought you into uh, this wonderful world of crypto. Sure. So uh, I, I have a rather colorful background. Um, most people wouldn't assume I would be running a crypto fund at this point based on where I started. So I actually, I have a degree in philosophy, which typically gets you into law school, uh, but I didn't go to law school. Uh, instead, I taught myself programming and trading uh, in the year 2000, which is was definitely an interesting time to learn programming and trading during the dot-com explosion. Um, so you know, throughout my career, I've, I've kind of like flip-flopped between um, tech and finance and then also kind of like dabbling some bit in the, the, the creative culture uh, industry, if you will. Um, so I used to be a trader on a, a, a desk on Wall Street many years ago, just a prop trading desk, um, like 2005, 6, 7 timeframe, um, but ultimately left uh, the desk because I was convinced that all the trading was moving to machines and algorithms. And so clicking a mouse just wasn't going to be a strong enough edge against, um, you know, algorithms that were executing at the speed of light. So I actually left finance, went into tech full time during the startup in Manhattan in 2008. And then within about three years, it become the CTO of the world's top ad agency. Uh, this was is Mother New York. Um, they've been ad age, ad ages, uh, advertising age is the name of the the kind of publication. They've been ad ages like top agency multiple times um, to, in their in their history. 
but kind of like through that three-year journey, I spent a lot of my time doing um, R&D in areas that I personally was convinced would be material changes to the tech industry. The first one was cloud computing. The second was uh, mobile technology, um, primarily smartphones, but also you know anything, IoT, touchscreen, et cetera. And then the third uh, really being open source technology and, and the open source philosophy of, of software development and community. Uh, while I was a CTO at Mother New York, I had this kind of side consulting business with uh, a handful of other folks called the Node Firm, which um, the Node Firm specialized in uh, Node.js consulting um, and training. And so Node.js, for, for those of you who are, may not be familiar with it, it's an open source application runtime. Basically, the easiest way to think about it is it's it's an engine for powering software applications, um, but you can use JavaScript to actually build, you know, server-side applications, if you will. Um, that uh, that consulting business that I kind of had on the side really blew up. Um, we started to get, you know, huge Fortune 500 clients uh, training thousands of their engineers, PayPal being one of them, is like our, our biggest client ever. And at that moment, uh, myself and this, uh, this guy named Dan Shaw, was my co-founder, started this company called NodeSource, which is the Node.js company. So if you're familiar with Red Hat, uh, what they do for Linux, uh, we do that for Node.js. It's kind of the easiest way to think about it. We bootstrapped that business, uh, got to millions of revenue relatively quickly, decided to go raise some venture in uh, 2013, uh, and uh, ultimately ended up raising over $40 million of venture through 2018, sold the company in 2019. Um, Node.js went on to become the most popular and widely adopted open source project of the last decade period. Um, it's actually utilized by almost every crypto and Web3 project uh, to date. Uh, in some capacity, they're all using Node.js. So it's a truly ubiquitous open source technology. We had customers ranging from like Saks, Citadel to you know Delta Airlines, Netflix, Mantec, et cetera, these huge Fortune um, 500 customers. And uh, today, 100% of the global DAOs are all used. Yeah. So it, it's been a wild success from this tiny little open source project to uh, effectively integrated everywhere. Um, meanwhile, in, in 2016, uh, while I was running NodeSource, I started to get into crypto because um, I'm a trader. I love to trade. I've always loved to trade. Just because I went into tech didn't mean I didn't like trading markets and, and tracking markets and my own you know, personal account, personal balance sheet, et cetera. Um, and 2016, I was like, wow, there's there's a number of different assets. There's a handful of exchanges. This thing has actually got a, got some momentum behind it. And then in 2017, uh, that's when, you know, things went crazy. Uh, and But more importantly, from my perspective, when I saw what was happening in trading crypto, um, what really stood out to me is a couple of things. One, I had just never seen a market so dislocated in my life. You had these 10,000 basis point arbitrage opportunities that would last for weeks, which is just unheard of in TradFi. It just it doesn't happen. And then second, and I think this is the most important piece, is that unlike Wall Street, which is very gate-kept, right? So, you know, if you want to trade on Wall Street, you got to like set up an account and you got to jump through all these hoops. You got to pay Bloomberg 25 grand a year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Crypto was like, everything's open, everything's open to APIs, data, et cetera. You want to, you want to trade, you want to run a strategy, just plug in and go. And it was kind of like the open source philosophy being overlaid to the future of uh, the financial industry, which in my view is digital assets. And so, you know, 2017 happened, 2018, I actually transitioned out of the CEO role into the chairman of the board role for Node Source, um, took some time off, 
uh, quarterly board meetings a lot easier to run a company than uh, 100 hour work weeks as a CEO. So I had some free time. And uh, instead of kind of hiking through the woods of Marin County, I decided to write quantitative and systematic trading strategies for crypto, as one does. Uh, so I actually uh, was introduced to a guy named John Burbank, who's the founder of Password Capital, recruited me to come build out basically the quantitative and systematic trading desk for crypto at, at his hedge fund in 2018. So I did that, um, but I ended up leaving in 2019, not because of Passport. Uh, I love Passport. It was a great experience. It's the industry uh, for US-based hedge funds. is just, it's extremely difficult to trade crypto. It still is to some extent today in, in 2023. So I said, look, it's not you, it's me. I just kind of want to go back, continue to do my own thing, explore this space. And so in 2019, it's bear market, great time to, again, kind of like I did 10 years prior, do some research and development into, in this scenario, uh, Web3. So I started to dig into Ethereum and uh, the Ethereum developer community, the tools there, built some you know very basic um, Solidity-based applications just to get, get familiar with it. Um, that then led me to Solana very early on. Um, I wasn't just lucky to Solana. I actually like read the source code and looked at the technical architecture of the network and um, kind of understood the impact of if they can do what they say this thing can do, you know, parallelizing... Um, the transactions, et cetera, like that's, that, that could be a groundbreaking technology and it's very, very different than uh, Ethereum. And so uh, it was very early to Solana. Meanwhile, um, you know, Crypto and Web3 is kind of open source by definition. Uh, and a lot of uh, founders would reach out to me and say, hey, you're an open source guy. Like, you, you know, open source. Um, can you advise me on my project or protocol or whatever? And so I started advising a lot of projects uh, and then angel investing in a lot of projects. Meanwhile, um, the uh, had an opportunity to join Microsoft in their cloud and AI organization as a senior director there uh, to kind of like, the easiest way to describe it is kind of like help them not miss the next big thing. And so I was at Microsoft for a couple of years. Uh, and the last thing I did there was actually help uh, kind of author their Web3 strategy. So kind of like the blueprint for Satya Nadella, the CEO and the senior leadership team which you're seeing some of this stuff kind of play out now. Uh, you know, the Microsoft Edge browser is sh going to be shipping with a crypto wallet, right? It was like the number one recommendation that I made uh, back in 2021. And so uh, in 2020, at the end of 2021, everybody remembers the good times and the, the bull market. A close friend of mine, uh, who's a very successful VC, also previously very successful entrepreneur, reached out to me and he was like, Joe, you're the only guy left in the space that knows trading, that knows tech, that understands crypto, that isn't already kind of like at a fund, you know, come run a fund for us that's, that's crypto specific. And I was like, look, man, I love you. I'm flattered by this opportunity, but if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it myself. And he's like, I knew you were going to say that. And so uh, the concept of asymmetric was born with, with his kind of coercion or influence, if you will, uh, helping me kind of like think through a structure, get set up, uh, introducing me to some folks and, um, you know, been very fortunate to have really amazing LPs, uh, starting with folks like Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon uh, as like the first uh, LPs in the fund. Um, Asymmetric launched actually in June of 2022. Uh, so kind of right near, I don't want to say near the bottom, but close to it. Uh, obviously, the rest of the year was still pretty tumultuous. Um, and we've been operating since uh, doing pretty well uh we've we've really held our own and uh, i think our performance uh, showcases that and the last thing i'll mention about asymmetric is um we are a crypto fund we we do vc we do hedge fund stuff we do crypto native stuff but um we kind of think of ourselves more like a technology company and i think part of the reason is, is that cryptocurrency is programmable money 
my view is you should probably be able to program uh, if you're going to you know, figure out how to extract a lot of alpha out of this industry, certainly on the VC side, let alone on the trading side as well. And so we have a lot of in-house proprietary technology that we've been building. We run validators, all this kind of stuff. So we're a little bit more, I would say, hands-on on the technology, certainly when we're doing deals, but also when we're actually actively trading and managing our own portfolio. Love the background. As you said, very colorful, uh, fascinating path. And I could see how all those skills have now converged into your current initiative at Asymmetric. I wanted to, your tagline at Asymmetric is a modern day crypto fund. And then you just added that you're also a technology firm. What do like traditional finance people who see uh, the dislocations within crypto, um, what do they miss when they try and come over and launch a crypto fund. And then similarly, what do the technologists who understand open source and blockchain technology to its core, but who don't come from a traditional portfolio management, investment management background, what are both of those groups missing? And how have you tried to solve for those gaps via what you've built at Asymmetric and the team you've brought on? Great question. And that is almost entirely my pitch to people is that we're kind of the Venn diagram, the middle of the Venn diagram of, of those two cohorts of, of, you know, traders and finance people and, and technologists. Um, so let, let's, let's tackle the first part of the question, which is kind of like, what, what do the TradFi folks tend to miss? Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. One is, is uh, when I was actually at Passport, um, I ended up speaking with a quant at a TradFi fund in Connecticut. I think it was back in like late 2018. And uh, the guy is brilliant. I mean, just an absolute brilliant uh, mathematician and built a bunch of really interesting strategies for this fund he was at. And he said, uh, he said, you know, so I want to think about, you know, exploiting some opportunities in crypto. Um, can you kind of tell me about what you're doing and, and whatnot? I was like, well, what are you trying to do? He's like, well, you know, like first we want to run some, some, you know, quantitative strategies. And, you know, today we kind of co-locate, co-locate these at, you know, certain exchanges. And so the speed of light is the actual bottleneck, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, right. And so he's like, so where would you even, you know, like what exchange would you pick to co-locate? And I'm like, well, that's your first problem is that there are N number of exchanges, right? And so the challenge is, is that if you just run a strategy on one exchange, you're actually kind of at a disadvantage because the other exchanges may have more flow or they may have different prices, um, the exchange that you're at may get hacked, right? There's all of these other things that kind of come into play that just don't typically enter the mind of, say, a, a TradFi quant um, that's used to a very kind of rigid set of constraints for how they're going to run a strategy. Um, so that was one thing, is that like, look, this isn't a, a, a you know a co-located kind of speed of light problem. This is a distributed systems problem. And this will lead into the second part of your question is, is like, well, if you're a trader, typically you're not a distributed systems engineer, typically, right? Uh, and so there are a lot of um, changes to the way that you would think about running a trading strategy uh, in crypto because whether it's centralized exchanges, it's on-chain, these are truly distributed systems problems, not uh, what you would typically get in, typically get in TradFi. Now, the kind of traditional finance folks, traders particularly, um, one of the things that kind of strikes them as as uh, exciting about crypto is the volatility, but is also uh, the grim reaper for a lot of folks where 
Um, in one case, you may be thinking, all right, I'm not going to use any leverage or I'm, I'm going to kind of trade the way that I've traded in TradFi and have like a pretty rigorous risk management system, which most people don't in crypto. Uh, but then you have, you know, counterparty risk, uh, really intense counterparty risk. And we saw this uh, ad nauseum last year. Um, how do you bake that in your model? How do you actually know how quickly you can get access to all of your collateral co across your counterparties? How quickly can you get your cash converted to say USDC and placed in a wallet that you feel is safe and comfortable, right? These are the types of things that typically in TradFi you don't have to necessarily think about, but are actually critical to the way you manage risk in crypto. Now, the other thing I'll mention is this is the segue into kind of the, what are the, what are the kind of open source technologists and developers, what are they missing more or less on the trading side? This is what's so fascinating to me about um, crypto and Web3, but particularly the kind of the DeFi uh, side of crypto is you have these really talented software developers creating these uh, new, almost new financial primitives or uh, applications that utilize a protocol that's just so fundamentally different than the way things are handled at traditional in traditional finance that they're actually creating, they're creating trading opportunities, right? They're creating trading opportunities, but they're not traders. And so they, they probably don't even know they're creating these opportunities. So if you're a trader and you can speak tech, crypto is just a gold mine of opportunities that can, that can pop up and exist. And, and just like any trade, eventually the edge becomes dull and you need to kind of like constantly refine your strategy and move on. But that's what's so interesting about the clash of these two cultures. But right. in TradFi, historically, traders were the king and technologists were like stuck in the basement, right? And in, in crypto, it's the opposite. It's like technologists are the kings and traders are kind of like subservient to some extent. And uh, I think that when you have that clash of culture, um, you can have the, the opportunity, if you know how to uh, extract uh, value out of that, it's potentially huge. It's very difficult if you're not a technologist to do that. And I'll give you one example. Um, so, so this is the kind of a combination of the two. Um, so in 2021, uh, we saw NFTs really take off on Ethereum. Um, so there's this other chain that also started to launch NFTs, which is Solana. And my, my hunch was if Solana starts to pick up, you know, quite a bit of user adoption, uh, and it's through NFTs. Well, this, you know, what are the core technologies that are going to benefit the most from from uh, NFT explosion potentially on on Solana? And the way that a lot of NFTs will actually work is um, when you mint an NFT, the actual, you know, called the image, right, the JPEG, if you will, uh, is stored on some, you know, decentralized storage protocol like call it Filecoin or Arweave. Um, these are there are others, but let's just for simplification, let's just say there's Filecoin and Arweave. That's where like the actual image is stored indefinitely. So what I did was I kind of dug through some of the source code of and it's all open source for the the Solana program for minting NFTs, and it turns out that the default configuration setting for where these NFTs will be minted and stored was Arweave, right? So put your trader hat on if you think that NFTs are going to explode on Solana and you know that developers are likely not going to change the default configuration, well, Arweave is probably going to benefit. And if you go look at the chart in 2021, yes, everything was up and to the right, 
But from that moment, Arweave actually outperformed a lot of the other altcoins dramatically, a lot of it driven by the NFT explosion that actually happened on Solana. So that example is is kind of like the the combination of uh, a, a kind of event-driven view that we may have at Asymmetric where we're like, hey, we think this thing may happen. How can we kind of test our hypothesis and also validate or invalidate it? And it turns out by reading the source code of an open source protocol that enables people to mint NFTs on its Solana is exactly where the answer is. And so I think that that is... Uh, those types of opportunities do exist all throughout crypto and Web3. The question is, how do you identify them? What I love about crypto with everything being open source, public, is that there are breadcrumbs out there and dots to connect. But knowing what those dots mean or figuring out the connections be between all of them and then using that to develop a thesis, and then beyond that, finding a way to express that view in an investment idea. It's a stack of skills that you need. And while I think historically a number of funds have succeeded just because they were able to um, be long the space, now there's a need to know when to take risk off the table, when to take profit, how to hedge your bets. And so that added element of being a trader has proven to be vital, especially over these last, you know, 16 months. So makes complete sense to me. And I understand uh, how all of your experience has led you to this moment. Now, transitioning a bit to asymmetric. So asymmetric was initially one fund that was a combination of a liquid token fund, and a venture fund. But now you've made the decision to bifurcate those strategies into two separate vehicles. Can you walk us through briefly why you did so? Um, and now like what the delineation is between those two strategies? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, the original structure is, you know, pretty standard Cayman Master Feeder hedge fund. Um, the difference was we would do, you know, early stage uh, venture style deals, um, but those deals would be accounted for in what's called a side pocket. And so at a hedge fund, you can kind of create this thing called a side pocket. It's just an accounting trick where an illiquid investment, right? An early stage startup, you get some private equity, private stock, you park it in this thing. Um, it it is it is you know venture takes a long time, right? For typically for these things to become uh, liquid and and available to you. Um, so by having a, a, a fund structure like the one we had, it would enable us to, when those uh, private investments became liquid, whether it was through, you know, a token being issued or, um, you know, say there was a IPO or acquisition or whatever, we could then actively manage that liquid side of the private investments in our liquid portfolio, Right. That, to me, is an optimal structure for crypto. However, optimal uh, is not how the market actually works. And so we attempted this initially. And the re there's two reasons why we're, we're kind of bifurcating into two separate vehicles. One is, is that uh, the current structure, or the, the original structure, um, had a, a lockup period of three years with a 25% annual investor redemption gate. What that means is, is that your money's locked for three years minimum, and then 
25% of your account balance you can withdraw every year. So it would take effectively seven years to get your money out. Um, that is, that's, that's good for like a venture fund, but we're not just a venture fund, right? We're a hedge fund. And so um, that is a pretty lengthy amount of time to lock up money uh, and be able to redeem it if you are a hedge fund. And so we, we because we created this kind of combined vehicle, we had to kind of do a little bit of both. We couldn't do like your standard one-year lockup for a hedge fund. And then uh, uh, we, and we definitely couldn't do 10 years like a traditional VC fund. So we kind of found something in the middle. The problem with this is um, when you talk to certain types of investors, so asset managers, institutions, pension funds, et cetera, they will look at you and go, are you a venture fund or are you a hedge fund? And we're like, we're a crypto fund. <laughs> and because they don't have these nice, buckets or categories that you slide into, it adds friction to the process of bringing them on as an investor. Moreover, 2022 was arguably the worst year ever to try to raise money. <laughs> so any additional friction in that process is something that you should just remove. Um, the second is, is that uh, the, the fund structure had us about roughly, you know, call it 30% of the AUM would be invested in private you know, early stage deals and 70% on the liquid side. And we've kind of maintained that date. Uh, the, the number is skewed uh, more to the liquid side now be, because of our performance. I'm <laughs> trying to say the humility, but yes, uh, we've done extremely well. And so um, we look at this and go, all right, certain investors um, want to invest in asymmetric, but they only want exposure to venture or they only want exposure to a hedge fund, right? And so what makes the most sense is listening to the market instead of trying to like, you know, jam it down their throats that this is the most optimal structure. It's just not a, a, a useful exercise. And so what we decided was, is why don't we create a venture fund? We'll reassign the investments that we have in side pockets to that venture fund. And it has a standard, you know, cookie cutter venture vehicle, 10-year lockup, two optional one-year extensions, all the standard fees, everything that people are, are comfortable with and familiar with with a standard venture fund. And then the uh, hedge fund will have a one-year lockup with quarterly redemptions, which is very, very standard for a hedge fund. And so this unlocks a lot, not only for our current LPs, because they can get liquidity sooner, uh, but, but if they want to redeem, for example, um, but more importantly for, for folks going forward, they can then feel comfortable being like, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try this Joe guy out, but I'm not going to have to lock my money up for seven years. I just have to, you know, one-year lock, and then I can put in my redemption if I if I don't like what he's doing or whatever. Or if I like what he's doing, I know that I have the optionality to redeem later. And then secondarily on the venture side, um, it's a standard 10-year lock, just like basically any other venture fund for the most part. So that's the reason. It's like, part of it is, is that are we going to, you know, eventually feel like, man, we should have kept the original structure? Possibly. But you have to listen to what the market is telling you. The market is telling you hey, your optimal structure is actually suboptimal for us because of these constraints. So if you provide this, uh, you know, kind of dual fund uh, option, um, theoretically, we should have uh, more LPs um, and I would say happier LPs as well. Not that they're unhappy. They've, they've seen the performance, but happier because they can actually uh, feel comfortable with the redemption terms that we're putting forth in these new vehicles. It makes so much sense that both liquid tokens and privates would be commingled into a single vehicle, given the fact that liquid tokens are effectively that representation of a 
later stage crypto project, but still a venture deal. So it makes sense, but I obviously understand that LPs have their view of the world and they have their own restrictions. So meeting them on their home turf makes it easier to just get a fund off the ground, get the AUM you need in yep. order to to really accomplish your goals. Yeah, I, think, I wanted I, to. I think yeah. just really quick, one note I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, is is that and you were touching on this, is that um, one of the reasons why we set up this structure uh, is because crypto venture is not like traditional venture. And the reason is, is that these private investments don't take eight to 12 years to have liquidity of it. They take months to a couple years, right? And so if you do a private token deal or you do a deal where it's a safe plus a token warrant and they issue a token, like you have liquidity very quickly. And the challenge for traditional VCs is they're not portfolio managers, right? They've never had to manage a liquid portfolio. And this isn't, uh, you know, some sort of derogatory statement towards them. It's that it's just not their skill set, right? Like they're not hedge fund portfolio managers. And in crypto, you don't have that luxury, right? Because if you all of a sudden get a token or you start to earn tokens over a vesting schedule and you paid, you know, some price and it's up a thousand X and you don't know how to manage that, that's a problem because you end up with what happened to a lot of funds last year when they had huge run up in 2021. And but because they are just, you know, call it long only or don't actually sort of manage a liquid portfolio, you have these massive drawdowns. And that's a disservice to the LP because your job as a fund manager is to generate returns for your investors. Like that's really your job. And if you have you know, these outsized returns and you're, you're not doing something to hedge or take profits or something. Um, and candidly, because you don't know how, uh, that's a, that's a problem for your investors because you're kind of minimizing the potential upside. Cause by the, by the way, like if you look at pre prior cycles, some of these tokens never reached their all time highs again. And so if you're like, well, we're long only for 10 years, it's like, right. But then at some point when it was up a thousand X and you didn't take profits on it, you just limited the the returns for your prospective LPs. Okay, this leads me to the exact topic I wanted to discuss, which is in your venture book, now you have a venture fund. You're going to have projects that have equity and token warrants that at some point, whether it be a couple months, a couple years, they're going to issue a liquid token. Asymmetric, you guys have already branded yourselves as traders, right? You know how to take risk off the table. Part of the beauty in traditional venture is that these these funds are in it for the long haul. They can't, I mean, they may take sell some secondaries, but for the most part, they're not actively trading their venture positions. So does that kind of, I guess, uh, contradict the venture model and are you worried about asymmetric and being able to sell asymmetric to a, a founder with them, with you having to be upfront saying like, look, I, when the time comes, we're going to exit this position and, you know, make crater your token price. But that's just the reality of how we operate. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, I love this question um, because I am definitely not in consensus Uh I'm not in the, the consensus group here with with my answer, um, but I, I think it it it, it comes from a, a a set of like principles that I adhere to. 
first, um, the notion of like uh, a VC that is out there saying, we want to invest in founders who are going to reinvent the future and yada, yada, yada. It's like, let's be super clear. You run a venture capital fund that you've raised money from LPs and they are looking for you to return money to them in multiples of what they put into the fund. That is actually your job. And so if you want to carry this narrative that, you know, we're in it for the long haul, we are, you know, forever partners, this and that, there are countless examples in traditional VC where that is fundamentally not true. Uh, And I won't obviously name names. There's plenty of movies and (laughs) blog posts about these types of scenarios. Now, the second piece is, is that in uh, crypto venture, as I mentioned, these things become liquid very, very quickly. And so the the notion of, hey, by the way, we're traders, we're going to dump all of our tokens, like that's actually not the approach we take. The approach that we take is we are actually in it for the long haul. However, we have a fiduciary obligation to our investors based on the way that, you know, we have positioned ourselves as a fund to the extent that if the value of your protocol, project, token, et cetera, reaches a value that we see as probably the limit, at least within the current context of the market, yeah, we may take profits in that. That is something I'm not ashamed to say because it's the right thing to do. Because by the way, if you're doing that and you're right and you've sold, you know, you have to sell the actual top, but you sell at a level that you have internally already figured that, hey, if if we reach this valuation or the fully diluted valuation of this network, relative to comps, relative to growth, relative to market, et cetera, this is like kind of running hot. The wise thing to do is kind of roll out of that position in a graceful way, not to the extent that you're going to go market sell, you know, a, a ton of these tokens. You do it in a graceful way. But more importantly, this is always market dependent. And so, for example, you know, if you would have sold uh, something very early in 2020 before the 2021 run happened, yeah, you maybe left a lot of money on the table. But this is why it's important to have, uh, we, we have this kind of rule, I, I've had this rule as a trader for years, is that I never get into a position without knowing where I'm going to stop out or take profits. And that goes for the same thing with respect to investments that we end up making that may have a token is like, look, if your if your economics are not sound, or you have some uh, attraction for mercenary capital to yield farm and jack the price up and then crash it or whatever, I've seen this movie before as a trader, and I know how to manage that kind of position, if you will. And so far, we haven't had people be like, "Oh, well, this is this is a turnoff," um, because the reality is is that if their token is that valuable, well, then they probably have been relatively successful in the market. And the last thing I'll mention is, is that we also, when we do receive some of these tokens, we're active participants in the network, right? So if we want the network or protocol to succeed, we need to stake, right? We're, we're heavy, heavy investors in a number of proof of stake networks and protocols. Some of them haven't launched yet. Uh, in order to uh, secure the network, you need to stake. And of course, you earn a, a yield on top of that. And so Part of this is the the trader mentality of like, hey, we need to know where we're where we're kind of stopping out, if you will, and or taking profits, or, or at least then managing downside risk. And we have overlay strategies on how we can do this 
across our portfolio. So that's not specific to say one token. But then now on the technology side, we're saying, all right, well, if we get to stake this token uh, while it's vesting or even post vesting schedule completes, we're going to earn this particular yield on it. And it also secures the network, which then in theory, if the network is secured and is growing, the value of those tokens grow over time as well. But the same thing applies, right? If all of a sudden those tokens become, you know, well beyond the valuation that we think is appropriate for that particular network at that moment in time, we will take profits on it. That is the right thing to do. And I actually encourage other folks to, to carry this narrative because what you don't want to see is what, what happened in 2021, where a lot of these funds, excuse me, 2022, where a lot of these funds now have effectively high watermarks that are almost impossible to reclaim. And the way that you can you can kind of manage that is by actively managing this portfolio in a way that doesn't say, hey, we're going to dump all of our tokens. Thanks for the, the, the free trade. There's some sort of balance in between being long only and, and uh, dumping all your tokens when you receive them. Completely agree. Uh, and it is a, a balancing act. And you see founders take risk off the table as well, uh, exiting some of their token positions. So I think there's the kumbaya world and there's the real world. And it's important that everyone knows uh, what they're stepping into. Um, you're, 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 the, the, it's funny you say kumbaya because that, that is almost the terminology that I end up using is that there's this optimal narrative like on the internet, whether it's on Twitter or Telegram or whatever, that people will talk about these things as, oh, you're you're such a bad person for doing this thing. And it's like, well, you're not in my position. Like, what would you do, right? And then furthermore, the uh, if, for example, VCs, you know, want to carry this kind of fragile narrative that they're here to back founders that want to build the future and they're in it for the long haul, right? Like th that, um, that just isn't true because if it was you would be granting them money, right? It wouldn't be an investment, right? No one no one invests in a thing and doesn't expect a return on it. And I think that there's a there's a balancing act, as you mentioned, between, you know, sort of being this sort of nefarious mercenary investor where the second you get your tokens, you do something that is net negative to the project, uh, but positive to you versus uh, having this sort of, you know, halo around you as some s savior, if you will, for, you know, investing in these founders um, and then not doing the right thing as, uh, you know, as a fund manager. I want to roll with the topic of tokens. So obviously at Seniors, we're a fund of funds. We talk to every single fund we come across, both on the, those pursuing hedge fund strategies and venture capital strategies. And in talking with the venture funds, I even had one GP said he was now allergic to token deals. And he thinks there are better business models for these decentralized protocols and networks than simply developing, you know, 10 million tokens and issuing this many to the DAO and this many airdropped and this many to VCs and this many to the team. And that there's better business models that can be created where there's live liquid token that can be a distraction and can actually work against. Obviously, there are benefits to it in that you can get more, you know, user owners of the product. I'm curious, you spend a lot of time talking to founders and, and seeing new business models arise. 
what is your general thinking currently on the utility of tokens in this new world we live in post FTX? Yeah, so I respectfully disagree with your GP. Um, I think that there are myriad benefits to uh, tokens. Um, the first being, uh, if you go back to when, when I was doing um, commercial open source, uh, there were no tokens, really. Uh, and and funding open source software development is extremely difficult. Um, on the one hand, you could set up a foundation and then grovel from corporate sponsors to fund the project. And then you have to kind of manage the bureaucracy of that. Um, you could rely on tips from people. This happens on GitHub. Those are not sustainable uh, and they're littered with issues. Uh, and trust me, I've been trying to fund open source for 15 years. Um, the thing that is most fascinating about funding open source today is that it can be funded through tokens. Now, the question is, is that does the token actually have real utility? Um, in the case of a proof of stake network, it's very obvious that it does, right? So issuing a token to uh, kind of secure the network makes a lot of sense. There are absolutely scenarios where issuing tokens is very obvious uh, that it's uh, a bolt-on addition to the, the project or company or protocol. But I do think that tokens have effectively solved the bootstrapping issue for funding open source, as well as the the long-term sustainability of, of funding open source. So that's one aspect. I think the other aspect is, is that um, I think one of the reasons why tokens are such an attractive uh, vehicle for so many projects and protocols is that um, it has effectively democratized angel investing. And, you know, on the one hand, there's an argument to be made that some people say, well, look, not everybody should be an angel investor. That's why we have accredited investor requirements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is that we are now seeing the evolution of uh, private investing, early stage investing at a global scale, as long as you have an internet connection. You know, if you go back to like the 1980s, 1990s, venture capital was primarily out of Silicon Valley. You had, you know, some smattering in New York City and elsewhere, but for the most part, it's the Silicon Valley bunch of guys they go out and raise some money they then uh get the opportunity to invest in these early stage companies companies like google for example uh they do extremely well they make a ton of money they also make a ton of money for their lps but it's very centralized and concentrated then you had kind of the next evolution of that which was angel list and with angel list it kind of opened the doors up well beyond just you know anybody that's in silicon valley or is wealthy and knows you know how to get uh an lp check into a into a fund uh, it was almost anybody that had an internet connection that qualified as an accredited investor. And now you have the third iteration of this, which is the ability for people to uh, participate in tokens um, almost anywhere. Now, I am definitely not a lawyer and I'm not making a, a legal argument or claim here. But the reality is, is that if you look at the trend of the democratization of investing in general over the course of the past, call it 40 years, to me, it is no surprise that tokens are an attractive uh, medium for either raising money and or investing in and trading. Because if you look back to the you know the, the early ICO days, um, I think Brave raised Brave Browser for their VAT token raised like thirty five million dollars or something in thirty seconds. I mean, that's just unprecedented. That is a that is a, a an unlock for global liquidity to start uh, kind of powering a lot of new projects and companies. That just isn't available in the traditional way of 
you know, founders raising money for a project or protocol, particularly if it's open source. So those are the reasons that I'm, I'm pro token. I do absolutely, trust me, I get four or five deals inbound a day and most of them are not great and are bolting on a token. And it's very obvious that the use case is not there. But I do think that there's there's definitely value uh, for the reasons that I've mentioned. And with respect to founders, when I talk to them and, you know, they, you know, the obvious question first is, are you issuing a token? And it's not because I'm looking for early liquidity. It's for two reasons. One, if you're issuing a token, well, the next question is, where are you domiciled? And if you're a U.S. company, I'm not doing that deal. It's not worth the, the legal or regulatory risk associated with it if you're going to be a U.S.-based company issuing a token. I just won't do it. Until there's regulatory clarity, it's just not for me. It's outside of our kind of risk parameters. Um, if they say we're a U.S. company and we're doing equity, okay, great. Now I can also think about park, like my, my ticket size, if you will, because that money is effectively locked to the extent of like a traditional venture investment. Um, if it is a private token deal and they are not do domiciled in the U.S., then we want to understand the tokenomics. We want to understand the token generation event. How are you aiming to get tokens in the hands of your users, right? Does your token actually need to, say, secure your network, or is there some other utility associated with it? And once we go down that, that path of diligence, you end up with some pretty novel approaches to um, those the, the solutions or the, the problems that, um, that I had just mentioned with respect to tokens. And we don't see it as a negative at all. The, the question is, is that, is the founder just trying to attach a token to this project or is the token actually you know, wisely integrated into the project or protocol? And in a lot of cases, uh, we don't know because this is also what's very fascinating about the space is that the, the, the way the tokens are distributed, the way that tokens are utilized is constantly changing. And so I love to see how folks are thinking differently about the distribution of these tokens and the utility of them because it actually starts to feed into my mental model of, okay, could this actually work? And would this actually be applicable longer term to other potential projects where we could advise them on sort of taking this, this route versus the one that they may have? And the final thing I'll mention is I've actually talked to a number of projects, actually two in the past two weeks, that are flat out not issue a token, and they could. And part of this has to do with the, the advancements in the underlying technology. So for example, there's a company that I, that I met with um, that is looking at doing native asset issuance on Cosmos. Well, Cosmos uh, has, uh, they had a change, I think it was maybe six or eight months ago um, to uh, uh, the Cosmos uh, protocol where they enable what's called interchain security uh, without needing to issue a token. Well, what does that mean? Well, Atom, A-T-O-M, is the token for Cosmos and it's a proof of stake network. Well, now if you want to launch an app chain in the kind of Cosmos ecosystem, if you will, you can utilize the security from Atom tokens being staked uh, for Cosmos for your app chain, which implies you don't need to launch a token, right? So in some cases, we're seeing the opposite happen where you're, you're looking at these businesses going, wow, that's actually really smart that you're not going to launch a token or at least you're not thinking of launching a token because you actually don't need to. You're just a normal cash flow generating business. Right. And that's that's super novel to me as well. But I don't think you start to if you have kind of a, you know, I would say a fixed mindset with respect to tokens, you're not actually going to be open minded enough to see those types of opportunities uh, like we do at Asymmetric. 
Yeah, the concept of shared security definitely seems to be top of mind for a lot of founders and uh, investors alike. So it'll be an interesting primitive to track and, and see how those that, that do pursue that no token route are able to, to execute on their business and their vision. It doesn't take much to realize that you are a Solana bull. And all all it would take is a quick gander at your Twitter um, posts or your Twitter PFP. Um, What was, you you referenced earlier uh, a little bit of your your Solana thesis, but what was your aha moment uh, with Solana? And what do people who have discredited Solana over the last six to eight months get wrong about where it is now and where it's going? Sure. Yeah, uh, I love this question. Um, so I'm definitely a Solana bull, but I'm I'm not a Solana maxi. Uh, I am a progress maxi. So anywhere there's progress in, in tech, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, we, we're fans of Ethereum, we're fans of Cosmos, we're fans of, of new L1s, et cetera. Um, but as it relates to Solana, the reason uh, that it really, the, the aha moment has a lot to do with uh, what I'll just loosely call pattern recognition. Um, but it's it's pattern recognition being applied to, to topics or areas that are net new. Um, so for example, uh, if, you, if you go back to um, uh, when, when chips, literally chips and computers, the, the actual hardware, we're starting to kind of reach these um, sort of ceilings with what they could do. Uh, they started to introduce the concept of parallelization. Um, there's a, an acronym that's SIMD, S-I-M-D, which stands for Single Instruction Multiple Dataset. Now, you don't have to nerd out on that or know what it means, um, but SIMD, the concept is that you can kind of uh, do things in parallel. It's probably the easiest way to describe it. And you get a lot more performance out of that. No surprise, right? Um, if you are doing things in, in parallel versus in a, in a serial or sequential fashion, it's going to be faster. And so when I started to build Ethereum apps and was playing around with that kind of ecosystem and, and tech stack, one of the things that uh, stood out to me about writing smart contracts and Solidity was that the, the state of the application as well as the application code itself was all in one thing. It was all encapsulated. And this is part of the reason why Ethereum is slower, uh, just for, you know, I'm not going to, I'm sure I'm going to get flamed on the internet for this, but the reason, it, one of the reasons that it's slower is that it can't actually parallelize transactions because the state and application code are all encapsulated into kind of one contract. And I'm definitely, you know, being high level here, but that's the the gist of it. And so with Solana, I was looking at it going like, all right, what they're actually able to do at a technical level is separate state from execution. And if you can do that, um, you can actually execute more transactions in parallel if they aren't touching the same part of the state, right? So if, if I have a wallet, you have a wallet, and I kind of send you tokens, right? Like, great. But if I have a wallet and you have a wallet, and then you send, you send tokens to somebody else while I'm sending you tokens, well, that doesn't, as long as it's not the exact same token, like, 
you could do those at the same time because it's not touching the same state, right? And that simple concept was applied to how I thought about what happened in the hardware space with things like SIMD and, you know, paralyzed, parallelized compute and said, wait a second, if, if Solana can actually enable parallelized compute for Web3, this is potentially massive, right? Because then you could actually have truly rich, immersive internet-based applications in Web3 that aren't going to be slow and super expensive. And, and so like, you know, Ethereum, for example, and I'm just talking about Ethereum L1, the way that you as a developer have to write code is like you're optimizing every single line of code to utilize the least amount of gas possible because you don't want it to be super expensive for your users. Moreover, you're, ten, you're, you're typically developing an application that isn't interacted with that frequently, right? Because if it is, it's costing you a lot of money and it's kind of slow, so the experience might be bad. So the, the constraints around the types of applications that can be built is pretty limiting. Whereas Solana is like, you can just fire off transactions nonstop and it's really cheap and the user experience is, is very consistent with what people expect when they use Web2 applications. Like, I look at that and go, if they can do it, I mean, it's got to be way more valuable than where it's sitting when I looked at it at $1.60, right? Uh, it turned out to be true. Now, granted, we did have, you know, kind of a run-up in the bull market, etc. Um, but the last thing I'll mention is, is like, you know, what is it that people get wrong about this? I think that's the, the key part of your question is that, um, you know, uh, downtime is not fun for anybody. Uh, I get it, right? The reality is, this is a Series A funded company with an open source project that's been around for a few years, and I'm not making excuses, but their approach is totally different than Ethereum. Ethereum takes years to ship material changes to the protocol. Solana is the opposite of that. They ship very, very frequently, right? And when you ship frequently, you are potentially introducing either operational challenges that can lead to downtime or bugs. It's just the nature of software. All software has bugs. No software is secure. Like anybody that tells you otherwise is just being intellectually dishonest with themselves or just flat out dishonest. And Solana is no different from that. Um, because what they are trying to do is so fundamentally different than the EVM-based approach, um, it is no surprise that they, under large load, will start to identify issues with the protocol that they then rapidly fix, right? Um, I think that this is like the key thing is that if you're just, if you're just an investor, you're like, oh, well, it went down, it must be bad. It's like, well, have you ever developed software? <laughs> or have you ever like, you know gone to Twitter and it's been down? Or have you ever heard of AWS itself having an outage? Like this is a distributed systems problem. This is a internet related phenomenon that is not unique to anybody. And at the pace and scale that Solana is and will operate at, you have to have that level of expectation. It makes it difficult to build mission critical applications in the meantime. But I think longer term that will ultimately win, right? Twitter used to go down daily because of the amount of traffic. And now, maybe once a year, right? Or you have some like geo-specific outage, right? It's the same thing. And over time, software always gets better. Uh, and the way that you do that, I think, is by identifying these these bugs that primarily can only exist in a production environment. When I talk to people about Solana, 
it, a, a, obviously a lot of bulls, a lot of people are attached to the ecosystem. Um, there's obviously the concern about downtime and there being outages, but I, I think you're you're on the money there. There's also the question of centralization. Um, there not being the same decentralized ownership of the network and validation of the network. And therefore it's like, oh, why am I using this blockchain that's supposed to be decentralized when there are a number of you know, stakers or uh, centralized entities that are kind of managing uh, the blockchain? Um, that is the primary concern I hear um does that even matter and then I, I this was the other part of my question was okay this was a major concern when ETH just had an L1 but now Polygon is no longer a side chain they have they just launched their ZK EVM you have Arbitrum you have Optimism you have all these other scaling solutions that are designed to make ethereum faster so does solana still matter with the implementation of all that tech so if you could touch quickly on the centralization piece but then more so on e-scaling yeah absolutely i I, i'm so glad you brought this up so um the irony here is that uh Solana actually has over 1,700 validators. I, actually, I'm probably way off on that number. I think the last time I checked, it was it was a while ago. But they, they have thousands of validators. Um, that is that is a fact. Um, furthermore, these validators are distributed across the world. They're not concentrated in Europe or the U.S. or in Singapore or something along that, those lines. And moreover, uh, Ethereum's validators have a higher concentration on AWS than 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 Solana does. So so. There, there's narratives and then there's facts. And the facts are that if you actually are going to go down the path of how Solana is centralized, the numbers just don't make sense. There's a there's a metric called the Nak- Nakamoto coefficient um, to kind of measure decentralization. And Solana has it's usually the, either one or number one or number two in Nakamoto coefficient. Um, I, I just don't see how the argument holds any water at all when there are thousands of validators they are distributed across the globe they are distributed across across data centers they're not concentrated on one cloud provider and you have a super high nakamoto coefficient i mean it just doesn't make any sense and don't let facts get in the way of a good narrative on crypto twitter right because now that narrative uh with l2s is uh uh-oh (laughs) these things aren't actually decentralized at all right um and this isn't mean to beat up on polygon or arbitrum or any of them it's just a fact when you have an l2 that has a sequencer it's centralized period full stop end of story it's the way it's designed right so the argument that solana is bad because it's not decentralized it's just nonsense especially if you're supporting an l2 that is meant to make your l1 faster but it is clearly centralized to that extent right and we can go down like the path of you know these side chains and that are now building l3s and etc etc as to uh how these get further away from the purity tests that eth maxis tend to have and even bitcoin maxis for that 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 matter have with hardcore decentralization eth ethereum the l1 has you know great 
decentralization characteristics because basically anybody can run an Ethereum node. You can run it on a Raspberry Pi, right? Like you don't have these hardcore network and hardware requirements that a high-performance L1 like Solana has. The downside is, is that it's not very performant. And so moving out to L2s can help solve, quote-unquote, some of the scalability and speed issues, but then you immediately sacrifice that purity test that the Ethereum, uh, a lot of the Ethereum community, not all of them, uh, tend to hold really close to themselves and somehow just kind of explain it away. And so I don't believe that uh, L2s are inherently bad. I I do have a non-consensus view, no surprise, that I don't think L2s are going to work longer term. And the, the phrase that I have consistently used is that the reason it's called an L2 is now you have two problems. You have the settlement layer and the scaling layer. And if you're a software developer, like, are you developing for Arbitrum, Optimism, some other L2? How does your how does your end user know what to do? They're switching the network. Do I have to bridge something? There's all of this user experience and then developer experience friction associated with L2s. That could be solved, by the way. But let's be clear, is there an opportunity where there's this you know, sort of step function improvement in uh, computer science with respect to ETH's L1 that now all of a sudden the L2 becomes cannibalized? I don't know if that's possible, but it is a tail risk that is associated with using an L2. And if you're a developer, if you have all this additional friction and you're a user and you have all this additional friction, and then there's the tail risk scenario that the L2 could be cannibalized, why are you building for it? And and uh, look, like, I do believe that the level of innovation that's happening with respect to scaling um, on Ethereum is wildly impressive. Uh, I just don't believe that the narratives associated with it, as it relates to Solana specifically, are valid. And it's just because I believe in math and facts for the most part. All right. Well, I I love the contrarian take. That's it. that's what we look for over here at at Senior Studio. <laughs> Wanted to uh, to pull out a second, zoom out, macro. Sure. Talking about, yeah, I've read your your market update that came out a couple of days ago. There is a flight to quality assets. So you see someone like Balaji Srinivansan who's saying the U.S. dollar is going to collapse and the whole banking system is flawed. And he said Bitcoin is going to hit a million dollars in 90 days. I think from like mid March, she said that, um, what, what does that mean in terms of Bitcoin becoming a trusted store of value that could supplant gold? Does it need to, where are we at with like crypto being a meaningful asset class for these people who actually have money, institutions, governments, et cetera, to re-enter and emerge into the asset class. Because right now, I, I don't know what's going to move the needle back to when we were at a $3 trillion market cap, unless that big money starts coming in. So is it going to be macro-driven or micro-consumer app-driven? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and and uh, I, I will just plug our market update, subscribe.asymmetric.financial. If you're interested in reading these, um, we we kind of dive into these topics um, pretty comprehensively, particularly on the macro side. Uh, and it actually has influenced a lot of our decision-making on the trading and investing side. And, and we've been very fortunate to be right on um, the majority of our calls, such to the extent that 
we actually identified the regional bank stress in February. It was in our market update in February. Um, we didn't know when or you know it would be SCB or whatever, but we knew that there was an unequal distribution of reserves across the banks. The Fed was telling you it was fine. Regional banks uh, were not. Um, and so we've kind of been prepared for this, and this gets to why we had the topic of flight to quality in the most recent market update. And uh, I'll get to the, the the gold piece in a second. I, I just, I just want to briefly talk about Balaji because he's actually a really good friend of mine. And I was I was on the phone with him quite a bit uh, the weekend of you know the SEB collapse and um, kind of the, the uh, whether you uh, agree with him or not that Bitcoin's going to a million in ninety days is kind of irrelevant. Um, Balaji is arguably, in my opinion, one of the most intellectually intimidating people that you can talk to. He's just brilliant. Um, that is my view. I, I know a lot of people don't share his own personal views on things, but his ability to synthesize information and and kind of see the second and third order effects of things is just profound. Um, that being said, uh, is Bitcoin uh, going to be the kind of um, the the hedge against the fiat explosion in the next ninety days? I have no idea. What we do know historically, though. Uh, is that gold has, for whatever reason, operated as this uh, uh, safe haven asset for hundreds of years. Um, and we have seen that actually occur uh, over the course of the past few weeks since the, the regional bank uh, stress started to actually uh, surface. Um, the difference is, is that gold is heavy and it's very difficult to move and it's very good. It's actually very difficult to purchase um, you can get exposure to it through things like futures contracts and ETFs, et cetera, but then you have to have a CME account or you have to have a bro online brokerage account, um, which then needs to be connected to a bank account, all these different things, right? And in the 2008 uh, global financial crisis, um, gold went parabolic. Uh, it was actually ironically right around the same time that the Bitcoin white paper was released in October of 2008 was the low in gold. And then gold ran up about 184% over the course of the next three years, which for gold is for a, a huge a move. A gold, gold typically doesn't move like that, right? So our view was, all right, if we're going to have a mini global financial crisis or a new global financial crisis or some sort of regional bank, you know, contagion, we saw what happened with Credit Suisse, for example, um, will people move to gold? And our, our, our view was, yeah, they will. But this time we actually have Bitcoin. And I think that this is the major unlock is that for the first time ever, uh, you have the ability to actually hedge your, uh, your bets without needing to physically buy gold bullion or log into a brokerage account um, to purchase an ETF or something along those lines, right? You can just buy Bitcoin. And we haven't seen that exact thing happen, right? So we were very fortunate to um, express our view on this when Bitcoin was sub 20K. Um, it traded $30,500 yesterday, right? And by the time this podcast is out, who knows where it'll be trading. Um, the reason that is important is that it's not necessarily that, uh, hey, all of a sudden Bitcoin is just on a new bull run. Um, because if you look at the way that all coins have performed, they've actually underperformed Bitcoin which is very, very, very rare, uh, especially given the prolifer proliferation of, of altcoins and, and the kind of potential upside that you may get with altcoins relative to like Bitcoin. Why is Bitcoin ripping? Well, is it actually a flight to quality asset? We think yes, we think that's actually the case. And now that there's actually kind of this 
digital alternative to gold or a digital version of gold, which is accessible by anybody with an internet connection and, and a wallet and a you know cryptocurrency wallet, implies that you may have a gold rush, pardon the, the pun there, to buying Bitcoin. And so even though we may think that Balaji's prediction is complete fantasy, the reality is, is that you could see a rush towards this asset because gold is just more difficult to obtain. It's more difficult to transport. It's more, more difficult to uh, transact with. It's, it's not fungible, right? Um, Bitcoin is the opposite of that. And, and I think that that is the, the, the key thing to understand with respect to flight to quality and digital assets right now is that if there is this potential for inflation, hyperinflation, a banking crisis, a pullback in risk assets, a depression, a recession, uh, there is a way that um, not just U.S. citizens, but basically anybody can move out of their local currency and into something that theoretically will hold its value in a different way. And that has been the case thus far, and we haven't seen it actually slow down. So we think the flight to quality will continue um, until, you know, either we reach some sort of crazy blow off top moment where there's a rotation back into altcoins and or we start to see a major pivot from uh, the Federal Reserve with respect to how they're managing uh, monetary policy through interest rates. Right. The other thing I'll, I'll point out here is, is that we wrote about this a lot last year. We were actually quite bearish all last year, which which played in our favor. Um, we didn't flip bullish until, you know, basically late November, early December. Um, the global liquidity available to invest in speculative assets is primarily driven by central banks and their easing policies. And uh, it turns out, I just got the report today, that um, there is very strong evidence that global liquidity bottomed in October of 2022, which just happens to be the low in S&P 500 and some other assets. Uh, we're starting to see that tick up again. But wait a second, Joe, the Fed is still going to hike interest rates in May. It's actually the easing is coming from emerging markets in China. So the rest of the world is actually providing additional liquidity that can flow into speculative, speculative assets, which could also flow into, you know, digital gold. That could be also potentially part of the reason that you're seeing a prop up in this price. Uh, again, this is this is just how we synthesize and think about these things. But when you're putting additional liquidity into the monetary system, it will flow to speculative assets, period. When you pull it out, the risk assets that are the furthest out on the risk curve ding, 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 crypto, get crushed the most. And it's exactly what happened last year. So this push and pull between global liquidity can also be something that is uh, obviously driving uh, the price action in Bitcoin, as well as the fact that a number of central banks have bought records amounts of gold this year. Uh, so if you look even at things like, uh, obviously, Russia has been buying gold for quite some time, but China, India, a number of other countries have been um, just gobbling up gold for their uh, reserve banks uh, all year long, that's not slowing down. That same pattern could easily apply to Bitcoin, whether it's a, a reserve bank of a country or it's the citizens of that country as well. Is there a stablecoin version of gold? Um, not that I'm aware of. Uh, there, the, I do actually know of a person that is. I think they've tokenized gold. Um which is cool. <laughs> I don't think you can actually redeem it. So, uh, but it is, it's, it's technically backed by literal gold bullion. Um, I don't remember the name of the, of the project right now off the top of my head. Um, but look, the reality is, is that, uh, 
um, if it's if it's a t- if it's a tokenized version of gold, it's just a derivatives contract because it's not the actual asset, right? So you might as well just trade derivatives if you're going to actually trade, you know, a tokenized version of something like that. In my opinion, right? Well, Joe, this has been a lot of fun and uh, a lot of information to digest and think about. Um, but one thing I I feel uh convicted in is that you have a different way of thinking and that's ideally what you want in an investor because you're either very right or you're going to be wrong but at least you have a view and you're at least agile with that view and willing to admit if your thesis is wrong and then adjust accordingly in each senior studio episode at the end we like to have contrarian spicy sriracha dripping spicy (laughs) takes so i feel like we've already had a lot of them but what is your sriracha infused bowl of uh spicy take within crypto uh man um well i already bashed l2 so we can't use that one uh uh maybe um you know, I, I I'll probably touch on NFTs for a second. Um, I actually I actually think that uh, I mean this maybe just me talking my own book, Audible, but I actually think that uh, one NFTs are actually going to be one of the most ubiquitously adopted forms of Web three out there, potentially dwarfing what's on Ethereum. Um, not necessarily in terms of neutral value, but in terms of uh, adoption and usage. Um, so you know, Solana has a compressed NFT. Uh, feature where you can basically mint like a million NFTs for like $2 or something. This to me is exactly the power of something like Solana, but more importantly, this is how you uh, commoditize the NFT experience and can apply it in ways that are not, uh, you know, a Sotheby's auction house approach to NFTs, right? This could be utilized in things like you know, rewards programs and loyalty and parties and events. And there's just countless ways that this stuff can be uh, applied. And, and I, don't, I just don't think that's possible on um, other chains. Uh, certainly not a, a core uh, settlement layer, Ethereum layer one. Maybe some of the, the uh, you know, side chains or, or L2s may be able to enable something like this, but still not even remotely close to the, the, the price impact. And then that leads me to a, another thing, which is... Um, Actually, there's a, a project called Backpack, which is technically a wallet, but um, and they have created this thing called an XNFT, which is an executable NFT. So you can actually embed source code in it and kind of run a, you can think of it as almost like a mini app within your NFT. Um, and uh, what's fascinating about this project is um, Back about, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, I wrote a blog post about over-the-top messaging apps being this new, huge monetization channel. And one may ask, well, what's an over-the-top messaging app? And it's like, well, have you ever used WeChat or Weibo or WhatsApp or any of these? Uh, it turns out that uh, WeChat uh, is a massive application within China, as well as it's not just a messaging app. It does everything. Payments, e-commerce, social networking, it's, but it's through the kind of the Trojan horse into people was, oh, it's just a way that I can like message people, right? That's what's fascinating about X, XNFTs and Backpack is that um, they can quite literally be something like the WeChat of, of a crypto wallet. And 
That's just not possible on other chains right now. Um, it may be in the future, but it certainly isn't. And that unlock, I think, will be uh, will look super obvious in a few years, especially as mobile starts to take off. But for now, to me, that is just such a groundbreaking leap with respect to what a wallet actually is. You know, the Trojan horse here is it's a wallet, but actually it's an app store. It's got all of these other things and these capabilities associated with it. And uh, I think on uh, April 20th, 420, they are actually doing a mint of the Mad Lads Mint within the backpack wallet. So you'll kind of get to test out this experience um, in real time. So uh, that's my spicy take is that I think uh, Solana NFTs are going to end up dwarfing every other chain's NFT exposure. Well, I got my backpack Chrome plugin locked and loaded, and I'm ready for uh, 420 when the Mad Lads NFT goes live. So uh, I'm here for it. I'm excited uh, to watch Solana continue to gain traction. And and to me, Solana represents almost Apple Yep. in that they are consumer and UX focused, whereas Ethereum is almost more like Linux. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're identifying, what you're identifying is this this kind of uh, analogy that I use, or, or uh, this pattern that I look for, is that in in software development, you, you typically you typically have like two types of developers. You've got like an academic engineer, and then you've got a product engineer. And uh, what you just described is the result of academic engineers, Linux. And product engineers, Apple, right? Um, the the Mac computer is just a better experience. I mean, yes, that's subjective, but arguably it's a better experience. Um, maybe Linux is actually a better operating system at a technical level in some way, shape, or form, but it doesn't matter if no one uses it. No, no one uses it in mass. And I think that that is the, the kind of key way that I look at um, Solana versus pick another chain is that, you know, is is the other chain, it could be Ethereum, it could be Cosmos, it could be whatever, uh, is that other chain kind of like the the BlackBerry, if you will, of, of mobile phones, and this is the iPhone, uh, or not? And and thus far, Solana appears to me to be along the lines of a well-developed product. Um, and the products that you can actually build on top of it are products that users want to want to use, and so you know, yes, uh, I, I'm obviously very bullish. It I, I'm not um, negative on these other chains. It's that you can actually have both, right? There is a world where Linux and Mac both exist, and Windows for that matter, right? Um, it's just what do you think is going to be the most valuable one, or what do you think is going to be the most utilized one, or what's going to be the best experience? And from my perspective, as we see here today, it's going to be slot. I love it. Time will tell. Time will tell. Flipping the question on its head, you got Sriracha coming from the ceilings. Spicy take outside of crypto. And I know us crypto people don't really spend much time out of crypto. What is your spiciest contrarian take outside of crypto? <laughs> uh, spiciest contrarian take outside of crypto. Uh, I think in and outs overrated. I completely agree with you there, and I, I say that all the time. I would take Shake Shack over In and Out ten times out of ten. Oh man, now I, I was I was waiting for uh, to, to reach through the screen and, and choke me on that one, but I'm glad we're uh, aligned there. 
Yeah, I totally agree. In and out French fries just almost like ruined the entire experience for me. So um we're aligned. Cool. Joe, thank you so much. Where can people follow along with you and the asymmetric journey? Sure. So uh you can follow me on Twitter, uh twitter.com slash Joe McCann. And uh you can you can go to our website, Asymmetric to Financial, but you won't find much there. So your best bet is to actually reach out to me uh over over Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on and for everyone listening. Hope you got a lot a lot out of today's episode and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senior's Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.